Hi, this is Queer Margins Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. Each episode, I talk to a member of the LGBTQ community who are rarely heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. And this is Episode 9, Gabby and Liz. We've worked very hard to come to terms with the fact that I'm going to die and Liz is going to be bereaved and widowed and it's very, very unfair and very, very tough. And then a year ago we had another blow. Yes, I got cancer too. Oh, shit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that is the appropriate thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's how, a bit how we felt, really. Gabby and Liz have been in a relationship since the 80s, and it was great to talk to them. Liz is one of the editors for an online journal called Memorations, and when I spoke to them, they were working on a piece together which focused on facing death, and you can find that journal on Google by searching Memorations Journal. During the conversation, we talk about a piece called Face in the Greig, which is one of the pieces Liz wrote for the first edition. When I met with them, they invited me to their house in South East London, where I was presented with tea and shortbread. We chatted for a bit about work and journalism, and then we got into the interview. Both their stories are really quite different, but they work so well together. It was great talking to a couple like these two, because they just bounce off each other so well. So, here they both are. Well, when I, I mean, I'm 74 years old, mm-hmm. so when I was a child it was in the 50s. And in those days everybody knew there was such a thing, but it was evil and it was people that you didn't know, that you just read about and heard about, and largely it was men. And there was a scandal at school when the games master was arrested on a bank holiday on a train for interfering with a, a boy. Um, and... Uh, so I knew about it all right, but uh, it wasn't ever people you knew and mm. the, the games master was removed instantly, you know. Um, it, was, it was something out there, over there, yeah. and, and not good. Well, I read The Charioteer by Mary Renault, and that must have been in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm younger than Gabby, so I would have been a teenager then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, my recollection is that that's a fairly um, positive portrayal. Okay. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, Mary Renault specialised in positive portrayals. It is really. and it isn't. It's yeah. about coming to terms with it. But it's not exactly portrayed as anything you no. would choose. In fact, it's very strongly portrayed as something that you just have to live with, but that you would never choose to be. But given when it was written, I think it was a very important book mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And the other, the other novel at around the same time was James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room, uh, and that's an incredibly powerful and moving novel about being gay, and much more complex than The Charioteer. But it's not one you would necessarily come across so easily. <clears throat> I mean, my mum read a lot, and she had The Charioteer, so I read it. The, the Charioteer is set in modern times. Is it set in the war? It's a, yes, it's, it is. The Royal is. Navy. Right, OK. Naval officers. Are they naval officers? Yes. Right. Oh. OK, I don't remember that. <laughs> It starts out when they're at school, and the narrator describes the narrator. (laughs) The narrator describes an older boy whom he very much admired being expelled in strange, hush hush circumstances. They then meet again when they're both in the Royal Navy, and eventually he discovers that the man is gay. Right, and it's about that. Right. So, what was your perception of like lesbians then when you were younger? Or did you, like, I mean, did you know it, like, existed? Oh, yes. I don't know how I knew it existed. I had a definite image of um, deep voices, tweed suits and hairy legs, which at one point came quite close to describing how I was. <laughs> but, um, I, when I was in the sixth form at school, I took part in a number of radio programmes 
um, a series on the light programme, which is now BBC Two, called Let's Find Out, where bright teenagers question people from all walks of life, two in each programme. And one of them was Nancy Spain, and everyone knew that Nancy Spain was a lesbian. So I met Nancy Spain, and I just remember sitting there thinking, I'm in the same room as a lesbian. And I knew, I knew that I was a lesbian. I'd never had any opportunity to do anything about it, but I knew I was one and I was just riveted. And she was wonderful. I mean, she seemed very happy in her own skin and she was dressed slightly butchly in trousers and a sweater, but not, you know, and had short hair. Um, and she was very articulate, very interesting, very um, feisty. So she was a great role model, um, but it was a, a shock, really, to meet her and actually be in the room with someone everyone knew was a lesbian. And she was a broadcaster and also a novelist, but she was all over the radio the whole time, so everybody knew Nancy Spain and everybody knew that she was a lesbian. How, I don't know, but everybody did know. <laughs> Yes, I remember seeing her once at the Festival Hall. She was at the same concert that I was at, and I must have been a teenager then, because I think I was with my parents. And I remember, yes, I, I think everyone did know that about Nancy Spain. But again, I don't quite know how. Mm. And it was just mm. like, so people just kind of like acknowledged it and didn't really, yeah. it wasn't really a thing. No. Okay. People people didn't talk about it. If they did, they talked about it in very, very disparaging terms. I mean, nobody would talk in a positive way about gay men or lesbians in those days, I don't think. They'd be exceptional if they did. My father was quite homophobic in a, in a fairly routine kind of way. So he was a journalist, and at one point he was a colleague of a very well-known journalist called Tom Dryberg, mm -hmm. who everybody knew was gay. And I said something like, oh, it would have been nice if you'd brought Tom Dryberg home sometime, could have met him. And my father said, I would never let a homosexual anywhere near children. And that was just an absolutely commonplace attitude. There was nothing exceptional about that kind mm -hmm. of homophobia. Um, and uh, there were other occasions when my father and other people made similarly you know, disparaging remarks. Mm -hmm. So it was just, uh, that was normal. But did you know that you were a lesbian at that point? I think I always... I always had this powerful emotional pull towards women. Yeah. I used to fall in love with, with girls, really. Uh, but uh, it never led to anything at all. And I wasn't even particularly aware of any kind of physical desire. It was about emotions very much for me. Mm -hmm. Unlike Janet, who you interviewed before. <laughs> I've told her she has to listen to it, so I don't want to spoil it for her. No, but it really is quite a story, and that's about sex. I didn't have sex until I was 21. I was in my last year after school. I went to Oxford University, which of course has a history of queers, but always, you know, not talk... Anyway, I don't know. I didn't know any lesbians, so I thought I didn't actually. Looking back, of course, I did. And sometimes heavy hints were dropped, which I didn't get. Oh, God. But in my final year, when I was 21, I met a woman who had just come up to Oxford from a girls' school, and she'd, you know, had lesbian affairs all through her teens. And she and I fell in love, and we circled round each other briefly... And then one Saturday night in early November, we ended up in bed together. And next morning, early, I walked back to my digs where I was living, and it was a bright, crisp November morning. And I was practically walking on air. I remember thinking, this is good, and no one can ever tell me that it's bad. And if only I'd hung on to that. I mean, my father found out and was very spiteful about it. And I just thought, you stupid old fart, leave me alone. I just didn't care. It was water off a duck's back. Mm. But the problem was, I mean, that ended very unhappily. And I came to London after leaving Oxford and had a job for a year and had no friends. And I was actually clinically depressed during that year. And I just didn't know any lesbians. And I made myself very unhappy for a long time 
wishing I was normal, just wishing that boys were interested in me and I could have a boyfriend and get married and all of that stuff. And it was entirely to do with my circumstances because once I did actually meet gay people, all of that sort of just fell away. Mm -hmm. But I was really quite, I think, mentally unbalanced during that period. I, I became a student after a year working in London. I went back to university in London for two years and that was in 1967. So I was a student in London during the May events of 68 and I was very involved in politics, left-wing politics, but nothing about it was gay. And I didn't think I knew any gay people. Actually, of course, I later discovered I did. But no one talked about it. And so I just felt totally isolated. And I read a novel by Maureen Duffy, who is a lesbian. It was called The Microcosm. And it was actually about the gateways, which is the lesbian bar that Janet talked about, which everyone knew about the gateways. Mm. And I remember reading this and thinking, if I've got to go to a place like that and live like that in order to be a lesbian, I don't want to do that. I didn't want to have to go to bars. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be in an environment where you had to be either butch or femme. I didn't want any of it. I thought it sounded absolutely repulsive. I wanted to be able to be gay in my own environment. Um, and I still feel that way. I mean, one of the things we've moved towards now is actually that you can be gay in more and more environments. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never been on the scene at all. I mean, Liz can talk to you a bit about the scene and how it was in those days, but I can't. I was taken to the gateways the only time in my life. During the week, it was closing down. I had lots <laughs> of events, and I was taken by some friends, and, and we had a very nice evening. But I'd have died rather than hang out in places like that with women who had attitudes like that. I just really did not want to know and I just felt I'm never going to be able to be a lesbian because I'm not going to know any women and I'm clearly never going to successfully be heterosexual so I'm just not going to have relationships and I was resigned to that you wow. know just resigned to it. That's a lot to sort of take on I think to be like right that's it that's me done with yes. ever having a relationship. What changed? How did you become part of a group of... Like, did you ever become like a part of a group of... Lesbians? Well, the first thing that happened was that the women's liberation movement started. And I couldn't identify with that at all because it was obviously about the problems of heterosexual women, which were obviously very severe but had nothing to do with me. So I just ignored that, really. And then gay liberation started. And that was all over the papers. I mean, there would be demonstrations in which men in drag would go up and kiss policemen. I mean, this was all over the press. And I was just astonished and excited, but too cowardly to actually go anywhere near it. But I had a job. I was working at the London School of Economics. And one day I was walking through one of the hallways and there was a bookstore being run by someone I knew. So I went over to have a look. And to my utter astonishment, it was a gay liberation bookstall. And I hadn't, of course, known that this guy was gay. I mean, I didn't think I knew anyone who was gay. So I stood there in a very nonchalant sort of way. I'm not interested in this. I just happened to be glancing at it. And I picked up a pamphlet. It hadn't got a price on it. So I said, how much is this, Andy? And he said, oh, it's um, five pence if you're gay, ten pence if you aren't. I put it down and I fled. I've never run so fast in all my life. <laughs> but, Why? Because you were about to be active. Well, I just couldn't cope with having to say publicly to him whether I was gay or not. I mean, what a fatuous thing to say and do. But shortly after that, Gay Liberation actually held a meeting or an LSE Gay Society. You weren't a member. You had to be a member to get it half price. Yeah. Yes, had to be one of us. Yes, 20k. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes. Um, they held a lunchtime meeting where they showed a film. So I thought, right, be brave, go along. And I got there after it started. I'm not sure if that was intentional. It may have been because I was having a bad hair day. Even in those days, we had bad hair days. And it was therefore it was dark and they were showing the film. But when the lights went up, sitting near me was somebody... That I knew, oh. you know, I mean, I kept running into people I had no idea were gay and there they were. 
The film showed a gay liberation meeting. They used to meet in a hall in Paris Square in Notting Hill. And it showed a small group of people sitting in a circle on upright chairs, talking to one another rather intensely about their lives and all the rest of it. And I thought, well, that's okay. I can do that if I go along there. I can talk about my life and they'll be nice to me. And I went along to this hall and I pushed the door open. And the first thing that hit me was the din because it was absolutely chock-a-block. And my glasses steamed up. And I stood there and waited for them to sort of unsteam. And what I saw was this hall absolutely packed with men. And it was all men because the lesbians had walked out said they couldn't work with the men any longer. And there was loads of screaming queens, there were men in drag, and everybody was being as, you know, gay as you can be. Mm-hmm. And I just stood there gobsmacked. I expect my chin was on my chest. I thought it was wonderful, but I was totally stunned. And a man came up to me in an Australian accent, said, would you like me to introduce you to some of the lesbians? And that was Peter Tatchell. <laughs> And there were a handful of lesbians there who hadn't supported walking out. And I met them and I became involved in, on the fringes rather, but I became involved in gay liberation and I became involved in the sort of socialist bit of it. There was a men's magazine called Gay Left. Uh, There was a group that used to meet called the Political Studies Group or something and that was the Socialists in Gay Liberation. And... From that moment on, my life was totally transformed. It was wonderful, but what it meant was that I came out and it took a little bit of time, but once I decided to come out, I came out to everybody. And I've been very fortunate because I I became a lawyer and I've always worked in places where it would be quite unacceptable to be openly homophobic. So I never had to deal with any rubbish at work. But also, somebody I worked with once said to me, you make it very easy for people because you aren't embarrassed and you don't give anyone else time to be embarrassed. Which was fine by me. I mean, and I've just been totally out ever since. Everywhere I go, and and no ifs, no buts. And I think that's probably saved my mental health, to be perfectly honest, you know? Liz, I feel like your experiences were probably a lot different. Yes, yes, they were. What happened to me was that when I... When I was 18, I got into art school in, in Leicester. And I fell in love and had a relationship with a, an, another woman who was also 18. And actually, for me, it felt... I'd had lots of relationships with men before that. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't have any hang-ups at all about right. having relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this was a woman and not a man... Uh, didn't didn't matter at all. It didn't, and it. I've never had any hang-ups about anything to do with right, okay. sex or sexuality, mm-hmm. really. Which, and I think I'm probably quite fortunate in that as a therapist, I've quite often had to help people who have. Yeah. Uh, and and people are, you know, very disabled by their their sort of fears and guilts and I've never felt guilty about anything at all. But then I went to Chelsea Art School and in fact I got married in the second, in 1971. Mm -hmm. So I got married to to someone, a man, obviously. Um, And that was a bit of a strange thing to do, although it felt perfectly all right at the time. Okay, so at the time you were... It wasn't like you would, because I've spoken to um, a couple of people who were married and they kind of, one of them particularly got married because she felt like she had to sort of hide her sexuality. No, no. There was nothing like that. No, no, it wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I thought probably was that I was bisexual. Right. Um, because by that time I'd seriously fallen for one man, well, boy, when I was about... 16, 17, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then a girl when I was 18, Mm -hmm. 19, and then a man when I was 20, 21. So, uh, and that didn't seem to me 
again, that there was anything particularly strange about that. It seemed, in my sort of way of looking at it, yeah. that just seemed, well, just... Like a natural progression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There didn't seem anything odd, mm -hmm. really. Uh, but it was, it was actually quite a, he was quite a difficult man, and it was quite a difficult relationship. Did you explore your sexuality much when you were with him? Yes, I mean, that, that, that began to happen. So I began to, to sort of then think, well, actually, I, you know, I want to explore this more. Right. And that didn't particularly feel like any particular contradiction with being married, necessarily. There was an organisation yeah. which I never had any part of for women called Kenrick. Mm. Yeah. And if you were married and went to the Kenrick, you had to take a letter from your husband giving permission for you to be there. And that was because of the law, because at that time, they could have been, he could sue if they lured his wife away from him. I forget what it was called. There was a term oh, for it. Was, it. Yes, yeah. because my husband who um, threatened that. I can't what was it what called? It was. Oh, even I'm a lawyer and I've forgotten what it was called. But there, I mean, it was usually yes. men. Yeah. If a men, man seduced another man's wife or she ran off with him, right. as well as divorcing her for adultery, he could also sue the man for interference... I can't remember. Interference with conjugal rights, no, there was something else, no, but you know. So the Kenrick, luring. to cover themselves, actually required a married woman to take a letter from her husband. Uh, That's yeah, how it was in those was. days. Okay. Wow. They obviously had been advised by a lawyer they needed to do that. None of the groups you were in would well, have dreamt of doing no, that. No, no, but I suspect they got lawyers in the group, probably. It was a very staid group. At least that was its reputation mm -hmm. then. Liz, in your piece, Picture in the Grind, yeah. you wrote about your mother and that she seemed like, I don't know, she seemed like quite a cool, like open-minded sort of woman. What was her reaction when you told her that you were gay? I think my mother found it much harder than she said she did. Oh, really? And I think one of the reasons for that was that both my mother and I have always done a lot of writing. I think that's one of the ways in which she felt very close to me. And I think that... One of the things that happened was that that when I came out, she then re she was had to cope with the fact that there was a whole chunk of me that she knew nothing about, and I think that was particularly difficult. I think she felt we were particularly close because we had a lot of shared interests mm. and a shared way of sort of writing about emotion. Yeah. But there was all this stuff that she didn't know, and therefore she thought she knew me really well, and suddenly she was faced with not knowing me. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very difficult for her. She would always say that my father found it very much more difficult than she did, but I actually think it was the other way around. I, I remember on one occasion, actually, but this was long before I came out, um, telling my mother that I was going to a spare rib event, which was up in London. Spare rib was a feminist magazine that ran yeah. for many, many years. Yeah. And, and that must have been quite... That must have been about 19... Must have been when I was at Chelsea, so maybe 1969, something like that. And my mother said to me, you know, there might be lesbians there. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Gabby, what about you? What were your parents' reactions to... My father was quite upset and quite nasty about it. Nasty. My mother was the most pragmatic woman who ever lived. Mm -hmm. And she... Her concern was that I should be settled and happy. She saw me, rightly actually, as quite unstable. So as far as she was concerned, what mattered was that I should be settled and happy. Um, and I don't think she was really happy about any of my relationships until I met Liz. Right. Um, she never quite took to the woman I was with before that, although they got on fine. But she was completely accepting of it and actually became quite enthusiastic in a way. And my father died a long time ago. I mean, he was he was not a bad man. His homophobia was just routine for a man of his generation mm -hmm. uh, what what motivated it is you know anyone's guess yeah. 
Um, I might have various theories about that, but, you know, it wasn't exceptional by any means, and I, I don't actually hold it against him. Tell me then how you two met. Well, we met at a... I came to pick my then-partner up from a meeting, and you were at the meeting, so you were all standing outside, and I got introduced to you. We were both living on the Isle of Dogs, both living in council flats. Liz was living with another woman. I was living on my own, and I was in a relationship which was really on its last legs. <laughs> and yes, we met on a very cold winter's afternoon, mm. uh, both absolutely swaddled up in winter evening. clothes. Yes, evening. It was, evening, it was cold. And this is then partner. Mm. Um, I was quite interested in her. And she lied to me about who Liz was. She told me that Liz was her cousin and her lodger, the implication being, therefore, that Liz was straight. And I have a very inbuilt defence mechanism that causes me never to fall for straight women because it just means nothing but trouble, really. Um, and so I thought Liz was very nice. You couldn't see her through all those clothes anyhow. She was wearing moon boots. And I paid her no attention, really. It was her partner I was interested in, but I kept meeting Liz. And I thought she was awfully nice, and I thought she had a lovely smile and a lovely laugh. Um, and actually, Liz had got her eye very firmly on me. It's the only time in my life when I'm not the one who made the running. And I, as it took a while for me to discover that Liz was in fact a dyke. Mm. I just took at face value what I'd been told. Didn't know there were a couple living together. I thought Liz was the lodger. <laughs> she didn't want me to know that she was in a relationship. And she oh. may not have wanted me to know that she was a lesbian, although she must have realised that I'd sensed it. Yeah. But she wasn't prepared to own to it. Okay. She was covering her bases. When we did get together, the first thing that happened was pretty quickly Liz left this woman and she moved away from the island and went and lodged with her. Her cousin, a real cousin, <laughs> not far from here. It's how we've ended up in South East oh, London. Okay. But then eventually her cousin needed the room. So she moved back and moved in with me in my flat. And we lived together there for the best part of a year before we bought this house. And throughout that time, we were living down the road from her former partner. And she never found out. <laughs> but it meant we had to be terribly discreet. Yes. So that nobody ever gave us any trouble. I remember people making homophobic remarks without realising that, that I was gay. Uh, and we know she never found out because I ran into her one day on a bus. And she was a most frightful liar, so I thought I'd have a bit of fun. And I said, how's Liz? And she came up with this total cock and bull story about what Liz was doing. And I said, oh really? How interesting. <laughs> and oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yes, so we know that she, she never, never found, found out about us, <clears throat> but it meant that we were completely closeted. And she won't now because she's dead. We were completely <laughs> closeted when we were on the island. We yes. don't mind really if she finds out now, uh, but she yes, we know that she's died. So I've done very poorly with partners. All all of my female partners so far have died. <laughs> God, it's a dreadful thing to say. But it, it is true. <laughs> it's mad, bad, and dangerous to know. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But anyhow, so. Um, <laughs> But then we moved away from the island and we moved in here in this house mm -hmm. and our lives changed completely. Mm. And um, you did come across her in backstage at Pride once. I did, didn't I? Yes. When all the GLF veterans went up on stage, I went up as a bit of an imposter because I'd never really been properly involved in gay liberation. Um, but we went up and um, Lily Savage compared it. <laughs> Uh, and yes, that woman was sitting in the back, having somehow got a pass into the backstage, and I said hello to her. And when I came out and told you, you were saying, where is she? I want to see her, but we couldn't get you in. No, no. Liz was in the audience. I didn't saying, have a badge. That's my girlfriend up there on stage. <laughs> I didn't have a badge to get in there. No. But I did. <clears> but you I was, had a badge. Yes, I felt like an imposter. I shouldn't <clears> really have been up. <laughs> um, so how, in the end, did you get together? Just gradually, really. Well, we went on a date together. So we went out to dinner, and I'm not sure that I realised that I was on a date with Liz, because I'm not sure that I realised even then that she was a dyke. But just we ended up going out to supper together. She picked me up in her car from where I worked, and we drove to 
a Greek restaurant in Mornington Crescent called the Colossi Castle. Which was so, where I worked, in Mornington Crescent, okay. not in the Colossi Castle. <laughs> and in those days you drove a car into central London. Yes. But in the course of the evening, I realised that Liz was indeed a dyke, and I think I must have sensed quite strongly Yeah, you that, must have known that. Before. Well, I can't remember, but I, I, se I sent you a... I sent you a book for your birthday. You did. You did. It was a book you'd bought at Compendium Books in Camden Town. Yes. It was written by a French-Canadian lesbian, and it was impenetrable and utterly and totally boring. But I read it from cover to cover, which suggests that I was interested well, I, in you. No, yes, I just thought that looks like the sort of intellectual book you might be interested <laughs> in. I didn't read it. You thought I knew all about it. <laughs> yes, it was awful. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yes, I think I realised. But Liz was the one making the run. Christopher. By the end of the... No, it wasn't Julia Christopher. It, it was, was a French-Canadian one. No, it was called the Christopher Reader. It's upstairs. I can show you. Oh, I got the Christopher Reader, but I, it was I a different it, book. No. no, it was a... Oh, well... <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but by I the end of the memory. evening, and I was probably a bit drunk by the, by the end of the evening... Um, I sort of realised something's going on here and, and this woman is really very, very nice. Um, and uh, But you'd had your beady eye on me for a long time. Yes, yes. I, I mean, in a sense, things were not going to go anywhere with the woman who lied the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I realised that as well. I, I sensed that she was really bad news, yes, so I really lost interest in her. Mm -hmm. um, but I was washed up, you know. I was looking really for She something. was very charismatic. Oh, yes, she was, and very charming, and all the rest of it, and very persuasive and convincing, and all the rest of it. But she was bad news, and I did get over my little crush very quickly. And then I realised that there's this terribly nice woman who's been there all along, who's sitting across the table from me, who sent me that book, who's obviously interested in me, and is obviously a dyke, which totally changed my attitude. And so, really, it... I mean, we got to know each other during the spring of... What year was it? I mean... 33 years ago, it was the year you went to was, Croydon. Yeah, so it was 85. Yeah, so yeah. we got to know each other in the spring. And um, Liz moved out from the island sometime during that period. Mm, and you really yes. didn't hang around once we... Well, I went, no, I moved out and went and stayed with Jackie. Oh, did you? I didn't know yeah. that. Right. Yes. Uh, and then you went to your cousin's, yeah. um, which was in Goose Green, which is just down the road. So, so you were saying about health issues? Well, our lives were really turned upside down in 2013. In, in April 2013, which is five and a half years ago now, I was diagnosed with um, cancer of the rectum, and it was quite locally advanced. It was stage three. Right. Um, until then, we'd both been in good health. Mm -hmm. Um, bowel cancer is extremely treatable, and even though it had been caught rather late, uh, it was treated, and I had surgery, and as far as everyone knew, the cancer had been cleared, and um, we all hoped, that the doctors all hoped, that I wouldn't be troubled by it again. But unfortunately, in June 2015, I had a local recurrence, right. um, a very aggressive local recurrence, and it's inoperable and therefore it's incurable uh, and so since then we've known that uh, I have a cancer which sooner or later is going to get me and uh, I'm well at the moment as you can see because I'm on one of those wonder drugs and I've been on it now for three and a half years which is pretty good going they're very very pleased with me indeed um, and the side effects of treatment are not too bad, but the main one is fatigue. Right. And um, so that's why I've now given up all my outside activities. I, um, I'm not involved even in Health Watch any longer. I've given it all up. Uh, and I'm just living for myself, really, because we know that I am... My days are numbered. Um, and I think, quite honestly, that that I'm likely to die in the next 18 months. And that's very tough. It's particularly tough for Liz. Mm -hmm. 
because you don't expect that at all. You, it's classic, isn't it? People retire, we're both now retired, and look forward to a long and happy retirement, doing all the things that you've always wanted to do. And the great thing about being retired is that almost all of us have had jobs which have had some bit of it that you find really difficult and stressful, and is the, the bit of the job you hate. And once you're retired, you don't have to do the stuff you hate anymore. You can just do the stuff you like. So I've never been so happy as I've been since I retired, which is now 10 years ago. Um, but this has just blown that away, and it's classic. And we spend a lot of time thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it. The piece that you've seen, picturing the Greig that Liz wrote, a year ago, a bit over a year mm. ago, it's just the first thing we've both together written a big paper, which has appeared in the same place, the same journal, uh, in the second issue, uh, and it's about living with cancer and facing dying and bereavement. Uh, and so that's our situation, but we... People talk about fighting cancer and I think there are a whole lot of people whose job it is to fight cancer, doctors and nurses and researchers, but I don't think patients fight cancer, not if you've got any sense, you don't fight it, you roll with it, you go where it takes you, if it means you're no longer able to do this or no longer able to do that, then you just accept that and adapt your life accordingly, I mean, the cancer itself has hardly made me ill at all to the extent I've been unwell it's been the treatment mm. uh, but we roll with it and we've worked very hard to come to terms with the fact that I'm going to die and Liz is going to be bereaved and widowed and it's very very unfair and very very tough and then a year ago we had another blow Yes, I got cancer too. Oh, shit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that is the appropriate reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a bit how we felt, really. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I had breast cancer. Right. <clears throat> and it was, it was found through the routine, you know, mammogram. Mm -hmm. So it was fairly clear that it was going to be relatively straightforward to deal with right and in fact it mostly has been I mean I've had two lots of surgery and I've had radiotherapy mm -hmm. and now I'm taking uh, a drug called tamoxifen right which I'll take for the next five years okay and I've taken half a year of it by now already mm -hmm. um and you've just had your one year and I just had the one year clear. and it's wow, clear okay, so um and I think we got we were so used, we, we knew quite a lot about sort of staging of cancer yeah. and things like that. Yeah, so experts, so that, that when they said, you know, you've got cancer, I, I think we thought, well, looks like that. this one is at least going to be relatively straightforward. I think they were a bit phased by yes, the way we dealt with were. it because, you, <laughs> yes. know, you know, you expect people to go into meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> and we just sat there and said, yes, tell us more. And oh, yes, and then your phone rang and it was, they were trying to fix up your next MRI and CT scans. And yeah, I think they began that. to get a sense of... Well, we explained right. to them what the that position actually, was. I'm not know. sure they could really take it in. They looked horrified. <laughs> yes. But I suppose the one thing we need to say is that we have had no problems whatsoever yeah, with the fact well. that we're a lesbian couple. Right. I mean, yeah. there's been perhaps the occasional incident with a member of staff, it was almost certainly agency staff, but really it's been impeccable. I've been treated at two hospitals. I was diagnosed and had my surgery at King's, mm -hmm. King's College Hospital, uh, but they do very little oncology, so all of my oncology has been done at Guy's and St. Thomas, at the can now at the Cancer Centre, Guy's Cancer Centre, and it's been impeccable. The only thing is that every time we meet a new health professional, we have to make clear we are a couple, yeah. because otherwise we think they're probably going to assume we're sisters mm -hmm. or friends. You see so many women 
in, not only in the breast clinic at King's, but also at the cancer centre having treatment. So many women who are there with sisters or close friends. Uh, mm. Women do bond and support one another in that way. Um, mm. And men as well. Mm. Men. And you mm. see men, and they're not gay couples. They're just friends, or well, maybe they're relatives. Or workmates. Yes. Often. Um, it brings out the best <coughs> in people, actually. You know, it mm. does. You meet wonderful couples going through such difficult situations, having to tell their children that kind of thing. And they are so supportive of one another. And the men, you know, I'm sure there are many men who do not rise to the occasion at all. They're the ones you don't meet because mm -hmm. they don't come yeah. along or they bug it off. But the ones I do meet are just wonderful, wonderful, yeah. supporting their, their partners. Uh, and, of course, women supporting their partners as well. Uh, it raises your opinion of heterosexuals, actually. Sorry, it's fat. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we do have to make it clear, because otherwise we suspect they won't know that we are a couple. Yes. You'd have mm. to be thick as two planks not to realise that many people are completely obtuse. Mm -hmm. And, and I often see... think that assuming that your sister's is less offensive than assuming but that you're together. That's absolutely right. Yeah. right. But also, the older you get, the less people think of you as having, yes. being in a, a relationship that, that has a sexual component. Yeah. So they tend not to think that you're in a, yeah, that's true. a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we very often don't get picked up, as it were, by young gay people because we're old yes, yeah. that's true and so they don't see... think of you as being anything other than old that's right we see young lesbian yeah. couples and we sort of grin at them and stuff and they stare right through us oh, yes. No. yes 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 especially but... if you haven't got your hair spiked maybe when yeah. your hair is spiked it's yeah, a bit fair, more it fair, Liz yeah. has spiky hair and it's tinted a dark blue black at the top mm -hmm. very stylish and grey at the sides So Liz is very busy and she's going to go on being busy so when I'm gone she's actually got a life mm -hmm. and isn't just sitting yes. there with her mouth open and thinking what do I do now. Does that make you feel better as well? Oh yes, because I, I, I worry about Liz. I mean I'm completely resigned to what's going to happen to me. I'm very sad about it when I do. It's hard to think about it, actually. The truth of the matter is you sit here talking about it and it sounds as if you've engaged with it, but it's not possible to engage with it, actually. When I do yeah. think about it, I just get desperately sad. But, you know, as, I, as far as I'm concerned, nobody has the right to expect as a right to live to a ripe old age and I've nothing to complain about. But it's when I think about the consequences for Liz that I get terribly distressed. Mm -hmm. It just isn't fair. Um, and it isn't fair that Liz has had cancer as well. And breast cancer is not nice. And it's, it's always a risk that breast cancer will come back. Mm -hmm. So just mm -hmm. talking selfishly, I'm going to die not knowing whether Liz will be all right or not. And that mm. feels particularly unfair. I would like to die knowing as best I can that we've done everything that we can to enable Liz to carry on with, with a good life in spite of having lost me. And we are doing everything that we can, but that's one thing we really can't control at all. Um, mm. And uh, so I'm going to die with that question mark in my mind. And that seems to me very unfair. But, you know, my oncologist said to me, all my patients who know they're going to die are so brave. And I said to him, well, the thing is, you've just answered your own question, that it's all your patients, because actually you've got no choice. You've got this problem, which is that you've got cancer and you're going to die. If you don't cope with it, that doesn't make that problem go away. It just creates a second problem, which is that you're not coping. So yeah. it's really important to get your head around it. And it's really important for me to work with Liz and help Liz to build a life that can continue after I'm gone, because it can happen to any of us. You know, mm -hmm. Liz can walk under a bus tomorrow, and I'm the one suddenly who's on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just have to actually address it. Um, and we try to, we try to be 
constructive about it. Completely and totally sucks. <laughs> but at the moment, life is great. And we're being very creative. We touched on briefly homophobia in the NHS. Have either of you experienced much homophobia during your life? Not very much, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, I mean, I said to you that I've worked in jobs where I was pretty safe from people being overtly homophobic, and I think at work is where people encounter a lot of it. I've, when I lived on the island, uh, I did encounter some, although it wasn't directed at me personally because people didn't realise I was queer. Um, but, you know, living around here, I think it's fair to say that we had one set of neighbours who were a little bit cautious. Um, and then their uncle died, who we knew because he had lived here. Um, and I went to the funeral. And that changed their attitude. And oh, wow. that's been my experience, actually, when I moved into my flat on the Isle of Dogs. A lot of people were quite wary of me, partly because of my middle class. But actually, if you're nice to people and friendly and they get to know you, then actually their attitude changes. If you're horrible, then... Well, it... <clears throat> I think if they're homophobic, their attitude to other people doesn't change. What ha changes is their attitude to you. They're one over. Oh, I don't mean them. you, dear. You no, know, like that's people right. who make disgusting remarks about <clears> Asians <throat> yeah. realise they're talking to an Asian woman and say, well, I don't mean you. That's what I there mean. There is a bit of that. Yeah. But I think also there is a bit of, you know, I've never met any of these people and now I know one and actually she seems perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's one of the ways we change attitudes. Coming out actually yeah. helps. But the truth is, I certainly haven't really encountered much homophobia. Would you say it's, it's the same for you guys? Yeah, and I think it's a... I think it is a question of... Um, it's to do with what's known now as privilege, mm -hmm. really. It, it is to do yes. with, with... It's to do with class. It's to do with um, income. It's to do with where you could choose to live. Mm -hmm. Yes. How you can choose to socialise. It, it's all of those things. But, yeah. uh, I you mean, know, I mean, I know that, you know, when we set the network up, you know, one of the main areas that people were having real problems with it was on the council estates in Bermondsey. Right. That's where the problems were, and Surrey Keys, mm -hmm. um, not not around here. Yeah. yeah, But I mean, one of the jobs that I did for about eighteen months was working for lesbian and gay employment rights as a caseworker, which was uh, was what it says. It, mm. it was a telephone advice service um, for lesbians and gay men about employment issues, and this was before there was any legislation prohibiting discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation. And I dealt day in, day out with people dealing with the most appalling homophobia. Uh, one person who was employed as a GP's receptionist and made the mistake of confiding in a colleague that she was a lesbian. And the woman went and told the GP and he just sacked her on the spot. There was a vet who did the same thing um, when he discovered that one of his staff was a lesbian and I wrote him a stern letter about unpaid wages and holiday pay and stuff like that which was all I could do and he rang me up and said you're threatening me and I said well if that's how you want to look at it but I'm just saying that in my letter I said that unless you paid her the money you owed her within 14 days we were going to go to an employment tribunal seven days are up now so you'd better get on with it we got the money. Oh, it was wow. very satisfying, yeah. but it was totally unsatisfying <clears throat> because there was nothing she could do about the fact she'd lost her job. And there were lots of cases like that, lots and mm. lots and lots of cases of people being treated despicably at work because they were gay. Overall, would you say that your experiences of being gay are positive? Oh, yes, yes. I wouldn't be any other way, would you? No, no. Based on what you know and what you've experienced, would you swap being gay for when you were gay in your 20s for being gay in your 20s today? Based on, like, you know, the... Well, kind of like, yeah, based on the, like the knowledge of the experience that you have with people today. I don't think I'd want to be in my 20s today, full mm. stop. Uh, but I imagine, depending who you are and where you are, that you 
I mean, that awful period of limbo that I lived through in my 20s wouldn't happen today. Once I decided I was a lesbian, I would be able to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and so in that sense, I would swap it. Um, I think a bit of adversity doesn't do you any harm. It can be a learning experience. It can strengthen you, but I don't think I gained at all from that period of my life when I was so wretchedly unhappy. I don't think it did me any good at all. It was just a wasted period in my life from the time I was about 22 to 26, maybe. So it's not that long, but four years of utter misery, actually. And then taking a long time to actually mm. settle down and, and discover who I was. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was just thinking that I think if I swapped it, that there would have been groups to connect with online and things like that, mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't have been such an isolating experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you'd be able to 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 sort of message people. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be able to do th- do quite different things. Yeah. You know, the woman that I had the relationship with when I was in my, you know, foundation year at Leicester, we could have connected with other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think life would have then been very different. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't any of that. You couldn't. There wasn't anyone to connect with, mm-hmm. and no way of finding out. You couldn't Google. Again, based on your experiences, is there anything that you would like younger queer people to know? That it's completely normal and natural uh, if you feel that capacity to feel emotional and physical passion for a person of the same sex. Mm -hmm. That's completely normal, completely natural. Don't let it bug you that you are that way. And don't worry about the fact that you may not be heterosexual, you may be bisexual, you may, goodness knows what your sexuality is, but don't try to be what you aren't and don't have any misgivings about mm. being gay. And don't let other people tell you things are wrong. You know, talking to young bisexual people where, you know, they've been told, they've been repeatedly told um, you know, why can't you make your mind up? What, by gay people? Yeah. Mm. No. Yes. And by heterosexual people as well. You just have to live your life in the way that is right for you and do not allow anyone to tell you that the way you choose to live your life, I mean in terms of your sexual orientation, who you make relationships with, that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. It's entirely a matter for you and what you should do is follow your heart. If you follow your heart, you won't go far wrong. When the interview finished, we had another long chat about all the work that Liz has coming up, and it was really fascinating. It's touching to see how worried Gabby is about Liz's future, and it was amazing to be with them for a few hours that afternoon. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed, then please subscribe and review, and follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching Queer Margins, where you'll be able to find a photo of Liz and Gabby, plus a lot more. Thanks.